0: Hey, Pitchfork listeners, Goldie here. If there's one thing we learned from the Trump years and what followed, it's how fragile our democracy really is and how important it is for everybody to vote. Because if we don't, it can be taken away. Here in the pro-democracy haven of Washington state, most of us conveniently and securely vote by mail. But if you're spending the day waiting in long lines or if you're just waiting for the local election results to come in, we thought it would be a good day to re-release our conversation with Vote.org CEO Andrea Haley. We spoke with her last year around this time about the state of voting rights, vote by mail, and the reality of voter suppression in America. We hope you'll listen. And more importantly, we hope you'll vote.
1: There's all sorts of reasons why the voting suppression nonsense is going on in the country right now is dangerous, but for sure it will end up being terrible for the economy.
2: Every time the voting process is one that is cumbersome, we have to remember on the other end of that is a policy that made it so.
0: We learned from the from the Trump years and response of Republicans after the 2020 election how fragile our democracy really is. So, Nick, uh, some time ago, you warned America and your fellow plutocrats that the pitchforks were coming, Uh, hence the name of this podcast. And uh, one of the truths about history is that when you look at the modern democracies, uh, they weren't all that democratic for the most part. And the democratic franchise only expanded uh, as a way to avoid pitchforks. Yeah. Uh, if you really look at the history of a lot of these voting reform acts over the years uh, in Europe in particular and in, and elsewhere, it was, oh, uh, we better give more people the right to vote or else they're going to come at us.
1: That's right. These rights were never given easily or willingly. They were no. um, <laughs> you they, know, pulling teeth. They were hard won.
0: Right. And even when you look at giving women the franchise, uh, both in the United States and and yeah. in the United Kingdom, it it happened at a time uh, around World War One where uh, women were needed in the workplace more than ever, and so it's like, oh man, they they might not they might not work if we don't give them the right to vote. I know, and uh, that that's uh, how we ended up getting it in the end. It wasn't right. out of anybody's good graces that white men easily give up control.
1: That's right. We're, we're going to talk about voting rights uh, today, Goldie, on an economics podcast for a very particular reason, uh, which is that there's an enormous amount of data to suggest, I think, prove that prosperity in economies is largely a product of economic inclusion and economic inclusion, in turn, is always a consequence of political inclusion, that right. one actually does precede the other, that you can't have economic arrangements that are good for most people if you don't have a political system which is responsive to the needs of most people. And for listeners who are interested in this subject, there is no better book on this subject than Why Nations Fail by Daron Asamuglu and James Robinson. And, you know, in that book, they do this marvelous survey of history uh, to show that there's this almost perfect correlation between political inclusion and economic inclusion and economic vitality, Uh, that you basically can't have one without the other and so that's why i mean there's all sorts of reasons why the voting suppression nonsense is going on in the country right now is dangerous but for sure it will it will end up being terrible for the economy
0: uh right so when uh you know we've seen uh after the 2020 election around the country they're doing their best to uh roll back uh, access to polls to make it harder to register to vote to make it harder to vote to make it easier for local authorities to suppress the vote we would argue that that's not just bad for democracy in the long run that's really really bad for the economy
1: yeah to be clear it may not be b- bad for the pocketbooks of <laughs> the people at the very top of the pyramid who are just who are attempting to cling on to what they have but if you want a growing economy you need most citizens to participate and the participation takes all sorts of forms including being fairly paid and being well educated and so on and so forth and those are the things that democracies are that high functioning democracies are very good at delivering And authoritarian countries are terrible at delivering because ultimately authoritarian uh, governance creates uh, massive amounts of concentration at the top. Obviously, we already have that in the United States, but the only way we're ever going to get out from under the kind of inequality that we have today is to have a set of economic policies that reflect the interests of the broad public, not just a few rich guys at the top. And so this is why voting rights are so critical to economic success and vitality and why you know everybody should be concerned about these issues.
0: And so to get an update on the state of voting rights, voter registration, and alas, voter suppression in America, today we're talking to Andrea Haley, the CEO of Vote.org.
2: Andrea Haley CEO of vote.org and at vote.org we work to streamline the voting process uh, to make voting accessible for all eligible citizens last year we registered over 4 million voters and we are working to register millions more
1: that's awesome great thanks for joining us so voter registration obviously is one of the most talked about aspects of the 2020 election both nationally and in particular places like Georgia but it fell off the radar as it does after elections. So give us an update. What's the, what are the trends and themes today?
2: In 2019 and 2020, we saw voter registration um, jump way up. We especially saw a new generation of voters showing up and registering, which is really exciting. Um, many people don't realize that 4 million people turn 18 every year. So um, I think that last year we really saw the on-ramping of voters. Once a voter registers and shows up in election, once you have them show up at least two times, they're highly likely to uh continue. Voting's a habit. So the biggest thing trend we've seen is that the people who registered are still active, they're still interested, they're still coming to the site for voting information. Um, and this year we are, you know, we have seen a smaller number of people register, that's to be expected presidential cycles always draw more registrations. But the interesting thing is, you know, I think last year we had about 16% of the eligible voting population using vote.org. This year, we've registered about 70,000 people so far. Obviously, this is a smaller, smaller number. But I think considering that it's sort of an off time between midterm elections and the presidential We're still seeing a high volume of interest considering where we are in the election cycle.
1: Of the 4 million people who turn 18 every year, how many by the time they're 20 have registered to vote, plus or minus? And I I realize that that data is probably not top of mind, but directionally, is it half, a third, two thirds?
2: historically um younger voters have you know people don't start to really pay attention to voting in elections until they're older registration numbers go way up um as people get older okay what we saw this last election cycle though in 2020 was about an 11 percent jump in young voter participation that's huge in voting world you're usually looking to you know it's a, it's big if you're making a one percent or two percent jump so to have an 11 jump Is like something that we haven't seen any time in recent history. So I think that young people directionally are definitely more engaged. um, And we're seeing them, you know, seeing that the trend is that they're engaged, they're showing up, and they've connected the dots between, you know, the world that they want to create and see and how important voting truly is. So we're really looking uh, to expand upon that. I mean, you're absolutely right to point out that in states like Georgia, where a good number of people, especially after having both the runoff election and the presidential election, are already registered to vote, that a lot of the 5% there that's not registered to vote, those are really young voters. And so I think it's kind of on programs like ours and other programs that work with young voters to proactively go out there and ask people to register, show them how to do it, step them through the process. It's not something that schools are really doing or other places are doing. And so I think um, I think the interest is there. we just have to proactively reach out.
0: Yeah so how much of this is a process thing uh, as opposed to just uh, trying to get people engaged I mean young people understand with how close the elections have been uh, the last couple cycles that you know that they, they can change the outcome right So how hard is it to register and vote and of course how, how much harder are Republicans making it?
2: It, I think it's absolutely a process thing. We know how to build and create systems in every state that would make it so the highest number of people possible who are eligible jump through those systems and, and get to an outcome. Like really in our country, we should have 80% voter turnout. Um, but these reg- the reg- issues with registration decrease participation and some of them are meant to decrease participation. There are things we can do. 20 states in our country as well as the District of Columbia, have automatic voter registration, for instance. And so an automatic voter registration, if you interact with the government agency, you're opted in to the registration process. You would have to proactively opt out. In states that don't have that, of course, you have to take it on yourself. And we see the numbers of registrants go up exponentially exponentially. When states have automatic voter registration, we even have some states that still don't have. It's only a handful, but that don't have online voter registration. Well, if you don't have online voter registration, your numbers of young people registering to vote are going to be lower. Um, so there are some very, you know, pointed things that are absolutely done to try to decrease the number of young people voting, people of color voting, people of lower socioeconomic levels vote from voting. Uh, I think these things are absolutely intentional and we're seeing an increase in bills targeting these populations all across the country.
0: Uh, for, for example, what, what type of bills are, are, are out there right now, both um, to uh, make it easier to vote, and of course we see a lot of activity on the Republican side uh, to make it harder?
2: Well, you know, we had historic voter participation, both registration and then in get out the vote efforts, uh, showing up at the ballot box in this last election cycle. And that's something we should really celebrate and be joyful about, um, that Americans are engaged, that they care about their democracy, that they are protecting the freedom to vote, that they're showing up. But what we saw right after the election was that instead of celebrating and you know creating more systems that help people to participate in the process, Um, or keeping the laws in place that help people to participate in the process. An effort, um, mostly Republican-led, to suppress the vote occurred instead. We had 400 bills that were introduced in a coordinated fashion all across the country, um, looking to roll back people's ability to participate. And what that really means is things like, you know, a larger number of people can participate when you keep the polls open for longer periods of time. So efforts to restrict the amount of time a poll is open or efforts to restrict early voting, efforts to restrict requesting your mail-in ballot, efforts to restrict an easy process for voter registration. All of those things were included um, in many of these bills and famously uh, also efforts to restrict handing out water at polls, which is a program that Vote.org also does. But you know, I think that every time the voting process is one that is cumbersome. We have to remember: on the other end of that is a policy that made it so. So, for instance, in Georgia, the average, you know, white voter waits an hour less in line than the average black voter does. That's a policy decision that has to do with the number of polling locations open in neighborhoods. It, it has to do with access. So these, you know, these kinds of things. I think everybody. When you look at these bills, sometimes it can be difficult to discern, well, is this really voter suppression? Is it not? What's happening here? And what I tell people is to think, you know, backwards. What would it look like to have a system that was built for the voter experience and to help voters through the process? And is this bill adding to uh, the ease at which a voter can get through a system and get their ballot cast and have their voice heard? Or is this bill doing something that creates an extra hurdle, an extra jump? or make something a little less uh, accessible than it used to be. And if you look at it through that lens, it becomes really clear. In this past
0: cycle, because of the pandemic, uh, there was a move towards vote by mail around the country so that people didn't have to go to the polling place. How important a role did that play in increasing turnout and how much have Republicans successfully rolled that back?
2: That is an excellent question. The thing to remember, is that vote-by-mail, to begin with, goes all the way back to the Civil War in this country. So we have a long history of vote-by-mail and participation with vote-by-mail. It's not something that's new. Many states have vote-by-mail opportunities, like the one you're in. Colorado does. Red states like Utah. You know, Florida also does. So this is, you know, it's not something that's new, but it is something that became, unfortunately, politicized in the last election cycle which is upsetting. But the process itself allowed many people to be able to vote, first of all, you know, on their own time, uh, which is important, especially for people working multiple jobs. And it also allowed people who were afraid of COVID to be able to participate. Um, And so I do think that uh, allowing vote by mail in many states made made access to the ballot box increasingly accessible for many people, especially in states like California, where they went ahead and mailed everybody um, their, you know, their ballot. So I think there are things that we could do that are highly cost effective and efficient in allowing access and vote by mail is definitely one of them. It is one of the main targets for rollbacks. Um, but it's interesting because this is not, a, should not be a red versus blue issue. It's absolutely a red, white and blue issue because as these rollbacks and these bills are being introduced, you're really talking about, yes, it will disproportionately affect targeted populations, but it's also going to affect everybody in Florida, mm-hmm. it's the older generation that tends to vote by mail. Um, you know, so I, it'll be interesting to see how much backlash there is to some of these bills. I don't think it's a, I don't think that this is uh, support, you know, rollbacks to vote by mail is not really supported by Republicans, Democrats, or independents. This is purely being done at the legislative level uh, with very, very low constituent support.
0: You know, it's interesting. The history in Washington state is that vote by mail was initially uh, in, supported by Republicans because they understood it to make it easier for older and rural and ex-urban voters uh, to vote, which was uh, their their base. So early on, it was politicized somewhat, um, and they only started to oppose it once Democrats started using it yeah. in
1: large numbers. Right. It's true. Yeah. Do you agree with our view that universal vote by mail is what where we should be headed? I mean, in Washington state, we're just convinced that this is just the way we should vote. It's just so much better and so much easier and so much more effective.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I think that it's definitely the direction that we should go in. We do need to remember that early voting is also important and keeping poll, you know, polling locations open for people who may need assistance or uh, you know right. things like that. So I, I don't think we should completely shut down or replace the ability to early vote in person, but I do think we should widen the ability significantly of people to participate um, by mail. So yes, I do agree with your viewpoint with the just small caveat of, that there are people who, who are going to need to go into a polling location for one reason or another. And so we need to make sure to keep those places open.
1: So what are the best states and what are the worst states right now in terms of voting access?
2: Oh, some of the, one of the best states is Colorado. California is doing a great job. Um, you know, some of the worst states right off the top of my head, we kind of see the same, same difficult actors time and time again. Texas, of course, is a big challenge. Vote.org recently filed a lawsuit in Texas trying to work to open up access. Mississippi Is a place that is difficult. Indiana, where I'm from, unfortunately, is has become expert at voter suppression. Georgia uh, can be a difficult state. Their voter purges and their history. And then there are some states that have a history of taking their online voting registration, you know, sites down the day before the election or day before the registration deadline, things like that. And it happens every year. So Yeah, those are the states that are the most difficult, I would say. Texas, Indiana, Mississippi, Georgia, off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, all the places you would predict.
2: Yes, any place that has changing demographics in our country as well is increasingly becoming a more (laughs) difficult place to protect access to the ballot box.
1: So how about zooming out? What countries do the best? Are there things that Americans can learn from other countries?
2: Sure. I mean, you have countries um, like Australia that have higher participation rates. There, they have something called compulsory, you know, voting, where you actually, I believe, are fined if you don't yeah. participate. And so they have, you know, dif- different incentive structures, and then they try to make voting the process itself as accessible as possible. And it's your, it's seen as your civic duty um, to go ahead and, and cast that ballot so i think that you know places like australia there are places um like india that have high voter participation rates in general i think one of the things is election day as a holiday which is a program that yeah. we also have at vote.org but that we would like to see nationwide we sh- there's no reason why we can't shouldn't have the day off have it at a celebration ha- you know participate in civics have a backyard barbecue after you do it like why can't we make this fun and joyful and, and increase numbers i think right off the top of my head Australia might be one of the places with the highest highest participation rates and a place we can look to to understand how to increase our processes. Of course, one of the challenges we have here is that every state runs its own elections according to its own election law. And so um, we have different you know just like your experience voting is so much easier in Washington than mine is um, in Indiana where I had a seven hour line every day of early voting when I went out to go vote. That's it,
1: just insane. It is. just insane.
0: We wouldn't tolerate a seven-hour line at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Oh, no. Why would we tolerate it at at the polling place?
2: I mean, you're absolutely right. It was wild to me as I was working this election, (laughs) CEO of Vote.org. I was not immune from experiencing voter suppression myself. My staff watched um, many of them who live in states that are more pro voting than indiana is watched as i had to go out there every day and couldn't stand in that seven hour line because like many americans i had to go back to work so i'd go back to work and they'd be like were you able to vote today and i just you know that was by the end you know towards the end of the um as the election date neared everyone was nervous like because obviously i can't a ceo get voter suppressed out of my own vote and it took really a ton of effort to make sure that that I could cast my ballot and have my voice heard. And it also affected my family members here in Indiana. And so to have that experience live in real time while, you know, going on TV and giving interviews about, you know, the state of our nation, all of these things, I think that people don't necessarily realize the experience of people like me in places like Indiana um, and how difficult it could be and how a simple choice. I mean, they opened up five polling places for, you know over a million people. So a simple choice to add more locations to early voting would have solved that. Um, These are all policy decisions and choices and deals that people cut on purpose to try Mm -hmm. to minimize the participation.
1: But just to be clear, in Indiana, does everybody wait for seven hours?
2: That's an excellent question. No, (laughs) Um, no, that's not true. There's a suburb, just a little bit you know, north of me. And and again, it's also different management. It's a suburb of uh, it's called Carmel, Indiana, and they did not have my friends living in Carmel were in and out in 10 minutes. Carmel was established back in the 60s after Brown versus Board of Education as a suburb that um, had a lot of flight to it. It tends to be not as diverse as the rest of Indianapolis. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Again, you're not using the word white in there. You keep uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it had a lot of white flight to it and yes. it, they tend to have a better voting experience in Carmel, which is wild. I mean, it's there are all sorts of things that occurred um, you know, this last election cycle, but there's a lot we could do to improve the situation. I think what I did see that was so exciting, but I don't want to celebrate it or make it the norm is people last election cycle stayed in those lines anyway. I saw chairs and people with canes and food and backpacks on just ready and prepared for shenanigans and ready and prepared um, to have to wait to cast their ballot. But they waited anyway. It was kind of an attitude of like, whatever you throw at us, we're going to still be here and still have our voice heard. And I hope that that energy lasts into the future and that momentum maintains into the future and people, you know, continue to fight for access. But it really, it would be so easy to to not create this situation at all. That's why I don't want to, you know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about all those amazing people who waited in line and made sure to cast their ballot because those lines shouldn't even be there. You know, the Georgia and Florida passed laws against giving food and water at the polling locations. And my argument back was, hey, look, Vote.org wouldn't have to send food trucks out and give food and water if people weren't waiting in six and seven hour lines. If you don't have those lines, the whole point is moot. So let's just make a policy decision that no voter in America should have to wait more than a half hour to cast their ballot and call it a day.
0: Yeah, have, have, have they banned uh, chairs and canes in line yet too? <laughs>
2: not, not yet, but I <laughs> feel like that's coming next. I mean, it's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. And being being facetious there, but you know.
0: Yeah, but but the but the amount of en- engagement, the fact that that people did wait in line, that, that's very encouraging.
2: It is encouraging. I think in a way, you know, I think America has a lot of voters have woken up and they see that there's a system set up in many states that is set up, you know, against their participation, and people are kind of working to, to overcome, I think there's a backlash to that. And I do believe that there'll be a backlash to these 400 bills that are seeking to suppress the vote further. I think after this last election cycle, people are not asleep, they're paying attention. They're also paying attention to their local elections, not just the presidential. They wanna know what's happening in their mayor's race and then their city county race and things like that. And so I think that um, with that level of civic awareness, um, you become aware very quickly when people are trying to take away your vote or they close the polling location close to you or they refuse to mail you a ballot. You know, these things that would just, that are so obviously process decisions that would make it easier to participate.
0: So, you know, obviously individuals need to um, let their lawmakers know that they, they want to make voting more accessible. I'm curious, though, about the, the, the business community you know obviously they spend a lot of money on politics uh, citizens united allows them to do mm-hmm. that some of them we know like coke industries is intent on uh, making it harder to vote for uh, obvious reasons what role is there for businesses uh, and other organizations to get involved
2: there is a huge role for businesses to play in this moment. At Vote.org, we have over a thousand corporate partners that joined with us this last election cycle to become pro-voting companies. That meant everything from you know having us come talk to employees to disseminating voting information. Schools, businesses, um, and Vote.org are some of the few places that people still trust to get their voting information and trust that they you know are getting accurate information. Uh, so we really encourage businesses this year Um, to talk about how do you request your mail-in ballot? What's the, you know, circulate when the registration deadline is. We had companies like USA Today that partnered with us to add voter registration to the end of their articles, and they registered over 100,000 voters. Businesses can also take a stand on, they could do things like uh, have paid time off to vote, which is huge for employees. Um, They can do things like stand up to these voter suppression bills and they can also support positive bills like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, I do think for a lot of companies right now when it comes to the major federal legislation that could really solve a lot of what's happening in states right now, a lot of companies are just figuring out um, how to flex their muscle in service of democracy and freedom to vote. I think that they have engaged, a ton of corporate leaders have engaged on things like climate change in the past, but they haven't really had to be the backbone of safeguarding um, our democracy the way that we really need them now. So I think teams in real time are figuring out what can they do, how can they talk about these issues, how can they make sure um, to not let the issues get politicized? How can you stay, like I said before, that it's a red, white, and blue issue, protecting access to the ballot box. This is a fundamental value as an American that we have. So something the business community absolutely can engage on, and that we're seeing more and more leaders step into this space of protecting voting rights. And I'm so excited to see it. And I hope that it gains momentum over the next few months so that we really have leaders of all backgrounds that are coming together to say no as Americans we believe in a, a thriving and healthy democracy and that means making sure that every eligible american can have their voice heard.
1: Awesome. Should we ask the final question, Goldie? Go for it, Nick. So, Andrea, why do you do this work?
2: I do this work because it's, you know, it's personal. Often the communities targeted are members of my family and this is work that has always run in my family. My parents are the type who work the polls and give rides to people. And I grew up um, always participating in elections that way. I think I always knew how fragile and had a good understanding of how fragile uh, the right to vote is and how quickly it can be rolled back or taken away. Because as I spent time as a kid with my grandfather, I mean, he told stories about being in World War II. He's a Black man from Anderson, South Carolina, who came back to a country that didn't want him to vote and didn't want him to participate and where they had a lot of local rules and, and different things that they would try to make people jump through so that they wouldn't participate. So knowing that that happened in my family and knowing that it was, you know, so close, I really felt that it was kind of on each generation to use the tools that they have access to, to make sure that we protect the right to vote. I think for a good number of people, this current environment feels new, but this this isn't new. It's actually quite old and something that's been around for a long time. So I'm called to do the work because. I want to be able to participate in democracy and I want my friends and family to be able to, too. So I take it personally.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: You know,
0: we, we learned from the from the Trump years and the response of Republicans uh, after the 2020 election is how fragile our democracy really is and yeah. how you know, important it is for everybody to get involved, because if we don't, it can be taken away. Yeah. And in fact, they're tr- they're trying to take it away. And it brings me back, Nick, to a comment you made earlier uh, about how um, essentially authoritarian governments are not responsive to the wants and needs of the masses. And I think to a very particular instance of how important a vibrant democracy is, and that was right here in Seattle with the $15 minimum wage. We didn't get a $15 minimum wage here because the political elite decided, um, you know, that would probably be a pretty good thing for the people and for the local economy. And we got it because essentially the people said, we want a $15 minimum wage. Yeah. And then, the mayor and the council members went to work right. and they hammered out an agreement. And because we passed that in Little Sea we passed it in Seattle. And because we passed it in Seattle, they passed it in San Francisco. And because they passed it in San Francisco, it was passed in cities and states around the country, either $15 or substantially higher minimum wages. And now we have Tens of millions of Americans who are benefiting with higher wages, all because people demanded it here where we have a vibrant democracy. Had Correct. we been Mississippi or, or Texas Indiana. or Indiana, as we've learned, right. well, you know,
1: it wouldn't have happened.
0: It, it wouldn't have happened because we never, the, the politicians have no need to be responsive to voters That's when right. they can keep people from voting.
1: No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, well, Andrea was fantastic and uh Yikers, let's hope she's successful, right? Yeah, and
0: if and and of course uh to thank Andrea for coming on to the show, uh we ask you to go and make sure that your voter registration is active. Uh if it's not active, please re-register to vote. If you haven't registered, Register to vote. You can go to vote.org. We'll provide a link in the show notes. And by all means, I know it's an off-year election. It's an odd year, but there are local elections all over the country. So please, please, please vote. It was an off-year election that got us the $15 minimum wage. Go to the polls, vote, let your wishes and needs be known.